The message you're listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. All right, this is the uh, Faith or Fact, uh, Does God Exist seminar. So I hope you're in the right place. My name is Josh Crawford. I, uh, I work with CO at Eastern Kentucky University. And uh, I didn't marry my cousin, and I do have shoes on, so it's not all true. Um, so this is my family. Uh, that's my wife, Tara, and that's my son, Kent. He's three years old now. Uh, that picture, I think, is about a year old. I had one guy point out that I've lost a lot of weight since then, so that's good. I get a little bit bloated in the summer. Um, so I've been on staff for like six years. Uh, went to uh, Center College. Some of y'all are from Center, um, and I studied religion there. And um, right now I'm getting my master's in divinity. Uh, and really, a lot of this stuff, you know, this topic uh, came up a lot when I was in college. It was a you know a non-Christian school and studying religion. Uh, you know, a lot of the questions that we have about faith and the Bible and God and Jesus and all that uh, were topics that we discussed all the time. So uh, this this topic's really near and dear to my heart. Um, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Uh, I've got some good quotes and a lot to say, so let's get going. Um, so faith or fact, does God exist? Is it intellectual suicide to become a Christian? And do Christians basically throw away every modern notion of biology and cosmology and philosophy and sexuality and morality and political science? Do we just kind of throw that all out the window uh, and just believe by faith because the Bible tells us so? Um, Behind that, behind that modern notion uh, in Western culture towards Christianity is this assumption of non-Christians, that non-Christians assume uh, facts, and that believers or Christians assume faith. And this is pointed out really well, uh, Richard Dawkins, oh y'all know who Richard Dawkins is, right? He's the scientist, he writes a lot of books on atheism, um, really well known, really 10 years ago was kind of his heyday, he did he toured America. He probably still does some, but uh, his prime is past him. But anyways, he still has a lot of followers. Um, also found out my prime is past me yesterday in the basketball tournament. Any of y'all played against me? <laughs> but anyways, a few days ago he tweeted um, an article that he really endorsed. Come on in. Uh, in this... Um, from this website called The Conversation. And the author of the article... He's a biology professor at the University of Chicago. And uh, there's some things that he said. His name's Jerry Coyne. I guess that's how you pronounce that. He says, in contrast to the methods of science, religion educates truth not empirically, but via dogma. Come on in, boys. What's up? So in contrast to the methods of science, religion educates truth not empirically, but via dogma, scripture, and authority. In other words, through faith, defined in Hebrews 11, 
So now this guy is quoting scripture from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. As the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In science, faith without evidence is a vice, while in religion, it's a virtue. Recall what Jesus said to doubting Thomas, who insisted in poking his fingers into the resurrected Savior's wounds. Thomas, because thou hast uh, seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Next part. In the end, it's irrational to decide what's true in your daily life using empirical evidence, but then rely on wishful thinking and ancient superstitions to judge the truths undergirding your faith. So he's saying that in modernity, we have people that in their everyday practical lives, from modern medicine to the automobile, everything that science has produced in us, our understanding of the universe and scientific laws, people in one hand, they uh, trust in the facts of science, and in the other hand, people have this notion of faith separated from scientific fact. This leads, he says, to a mind, no matter how scientifically, come on, no matter how, yeah, y'all are good. That's good. No matter how scientifically renowned, at war with itself, this leads to a mind with a a mind at war with itself, producing the cognitive dissonance that prompts accommodationism. If you decide to have good reasons for holding any belief, then you must choose between faith and reason. Did you hear that? If you decide to have any or if you decide to have good reasons for holding any beliefs, then you must choose between faith and reason, faith or fact. And as facts become increasingly important for the welfare of our species and our planet, people should see faith for what it is, not a virtue, but a defect. Very bold statement by Professor Coyne. This is the picture that he gives uh, at the head of his article, showing doubting Thomas uh, searching for the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. So, what is faith? Is faith, as Dr. Coyne says, belief with the absence of facts? That is typically how we define faith in our culture. Even Christians. Belief with the absence of facts. But I would ask, what is unbelief? The assumption is unbelief assumes facts. But my question is, does unbelief have facts with, uh, with the absence of faith? And I think we need to bring that into question. So, I'm going to talk a little bit about the nature of unbelief before I get into the facts of Christianity or of God. Here's the first thing. There are two poles of unbelief. This is, I read this in a book called uh, Fool's Talk by Oz Guinness. If you get a chance, you should read it. So there are two opposite poles. There is a dilemma pole and there is a diversion pole. These are people who do not believe in God and they exist on this spectrum between these two poles. He says that a dilemma pole is the, the idea that people do not believe and they understand the implications of what they don't believe. So if I don't believe in God, 
then that calls into question my understanding of the reality of things like love. It, it calls into question the reality of things like morality. It calls into question even simple realities of hope and desire and uh, even the reality of science. On the other side of the spectrum is the diversion pole. And this is where he says most people live, where an unbeliever holds to this idea that there is no God, there is no higher being, there is no transcendent reality above the natural universe that we have, but they ignore the implications of that belief. So here's an example of the dilemma poll. Anyone ever read uh, Nietzsche? So Nietzsche was in the uh, 19th century uh, Western philosopher, and he was, he was really the first philosopher that coined the term, God is dead. And this is uh, from his parable of the madman. So listen to it. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him. You and I, we are his murderers, but how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving now? Away from all suns? Are we not perpetually falling? Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there any up or down or left? Or is there any up or down left? Are we not straying as, as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not more and more night coming on all the time? Must not lanterns be lit in the morning? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are, who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we, murder, murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was the holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood off of us? With what water could we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we need to invent is not the greatness of this deed too great for us must we not ourselves become gods simply to be worthy of it there has never been a greater deed and whosoever shall be born after us for the sake of this deed he shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto so Nietzsche an atheist says that we have killed God and when you remove the existence of God, when you remove the belief of God, what happens to society? What happens to people? His questions are, do we not go to and fro? Do we not fall perpetually? Is there not anything left to stand upon? No. What do we stand upon if there is not God? How do we define morality? How do we define love? How do we define culture? if there is no God any longer. 
Nietzsche was frustrated that East or Western society had adopted the philosophy of not really believing in God, but had still held to the implications as though God still existed. Nietzsche was on the side of the dilemma pole. He realized there's a dilemma here. We either hold to God and continue to hold to the implications of believing in God, or we let go of God and let go of all the implications of believing in God. The other side of the pole is the diversion pole. The diversion pole is where people are, uh, do not have belief in God, but they still hold to what Nietzsche would say is Christian values, the values of love and freedom and equality and human dignity, all of those things that come along with a Christian westernized society. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. Uh, he said that he was at this point in his life uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of, uh, of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all that, he was an atheist, and he was talking to some of his friends who were professors, and um, basically they would talk about belief and religion and all these different things, and his friends challenged him to actually live out the implications of not believing in God. And so he took their challenge. And he spent, I don't know how long it was, a year, two years or so, and tried to live out the implications of there being no God and not having some kind of foundation for the most essential things of humanity, love and morality and justice and all of those things. And he said that he couldn't do it. And ultimately, that was the beginning of him coming to a belief in God because he realized there's no way that I can actually live a life separated from God. So, my point in, in saying these things to you is that many non-believers, and I assume that some of you in here, if not many of you, are unbelievers. And I'm, I'm glad that you're here. Um, I thank you for coming to listen. But my point is, many non-believers function on the assumption of faith in God. That you function out of uh, a Christianized idea of what it means to be human. And I would, I would guess if uh, you were challenged, like C.S. Lewis was challenged, to actually live out the implications of not believing in a God, and it takes a little bit of digging and figuring out what those implications are, but living out the implications of not believing in a God, you might come to the point where you say, how could I live this out? That's barbaric. And so if you study the history of the church, of Christianity moving into European culture, you see a shift between a people living uh, in paganism and then a complete reversal of morality and human dignity and an understanding of love and all those things whenever the church and Christianity spreads into Europe. And we operate on the assumption on those things because that's what our culture gives us. We assume that it's right to 
for every person to have human dignity. But that hasn't always been the assumption of the West. And even the fight against slavery. You know, if you read the history of guys like William Wilberforce in, uh, in the UK, he fought for 40 years to end slavery because he said, slavery does not align with Christianity. So there is no Christian nation of Great Britain if we are holding to this idea of slavery. Why? Because all humans have dignity. Where does he get that? A Christian worldview, a belief in the God of the Bible. So my point is, we all live on these assumptions that are actually implications of believing in God or of God actually existing. So, so let me go a little bit further with uh, unbelief. I want to just give you a snapshot. Uh, this is also from Oz Guinness called The Anatomy of Unbelief. What is unbelief at its core? And this is according to the Bible. Nietzsche said dissonance. We all have dissonance in human form. Uh, Immanuel Kant said that we are all crooked timber. That we all have these ideas of truth, but they're all crooked. Um, And then Alden said the desires of the heart are as crooked as corkscrews. So, first, the anatomy of unbelief. Unbelief abuses truth through a deliberate act of suppression. Unbelief takes truth and pushes it down and suppresses it. Secondly, Unbelief abuses truth through a deliberate act of exploitation. To go along with that, thirdly, unbelief goes further still and abuses truth through a deliberate act of inversion. So unbelief takes facts, takes truth, and uses it for its own gain. And then it goes a little bit further, and unbelief takes truth and inverts it, to where we, as truth receivers, become truth dictators. Where we put ourselves as the judge over truth. Fourthly, unbelief abuses truth through a deliberate act of deception that ends in its own self-deception. So spiritually understood, man... Humankind, in our natural condition, we are sick. We are in error. We are in an illusion. And therefore, our desires, most of all, um, turn out to be deception when we deal with truth. So that we can be permitted not only to remain in error, but to find ourselves comfortably in our self-deceit. We would all... so. There are things that we're really passionate about, right? So hot topic right now, uh, part of the cultural war is just our politics. The, the framing of our politics is you got to be on this side or you got to be on that side. And if you're on this side, then that other side, they're liars. That's false news, right? Or fake news. Uh, and the other side says the same thing, right? Now, They've got the fake news. 
But they're dealing with the same stories. <laughs> they're, de- they're dealing with the same facts, the same ingredients, the same evidence. Both sides are pointing at the other one and saying, you're taking that truth and you are manipulating it to make your point, to back up what you already believe. That's what he's saying here. We all do this, not just with politics, but with every kind of truth in life. And when you get to a Christian worldview, there's a spiritual component to that. It's because we are all sin sick. We're all ill to our core when we take truth about God and do the same thing that we do with truth about economics and political theory and all those things. So John Frame says this. Yeah. Listen to this. This is from a biblical standpoint. The following statement is profoundly at odds with our old mind culture that profoundly defends its autonomy. But it is the teaching of Scripture. God claims a totalitarian authority over the human intellect. And if this God really exists, that claim is eminently reasonable. God made the world, He made the human mind, and He devised the connections between them. Only He has the ultimate knowledge of what we should believe. That is really hard for a 21st century westernized American to accept. God has ultimate authority over our intellect. I thought I was was a free agent. No, the Bible says God has authority over every part of you, including your intellect. He made the mind, therefore he has the right to claim authority over that. So, all that really is an undergirding of what I'm about to tell you about the facts of God. If those things are true about our unbelief, and those things are true about God being having authority over the intellect, then the Bible makes a whole lot of sense. Because the Bible simply is God's revelation of Himself. God is showing us who He is through the Bible, and specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. So listen to this. If there is a God, then by definition, the only way we can know Him is if He reveals Himself to us. Just by definition of what God is and what humans are. One of the best ways to understand God in relation to creation is as an author to a story. The author exists completely outside the world of the story, right? So does God. This is called transcendence in theological terms. The only way for Harry Potter to know J.K. Rowling is if she writes herself into the story. Otherwise, Harry Potter doesn't know who J.K. Rowling is. That's how the Bible works. That's how the Bible explains God's revelation of himself to humans. He writes himself into the story. So, what does the Bible say about us? 
as humans, in our, specifically to our intellect and understanding facts. The Bible starts out, as you've probably heard before, probably just this week you've heard, that we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. Let us make man in our own image, is what God says. Meaning that we are spiritual creatures, which everybody knows that about Christianity, right? We know we're spiritual creatures. But it also means that we are rational creatures, and we are emotional creatures, and we are in a body. Read Genesis and see if that's true. We are spiritual, rational, emotional, and we are in bodily form. And you cannot, car- uh, you cannot compartmentalize any aspect of your humanity. You cannot separate your spirituality from your emotions. You cannot separate your uh, bodily reality from your rational reality. They all go together in making you a human. This is why we sweat when we're angry or nervous. And this is why we, our cheeks turn red when we get embarrassed. We have physical manifestations of emotions. And why our sinfulness distorts what is true. Because our spirituality is also connected to our rationality. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying in the anatomy of unbelief. Our, our intellect, our ability to reason is not separate from our spiritual condition. It's all tied into one. That's what it means to be a human. This is also why something done to you emotionally or bodily can affect how you understand the world spiritually. Let me give you an example of myself. I was raised in a broken home. My dad was a drug addict. He was abusive. He was abusive to my mom. He was abusive to me and my brothers. And my whole worldview was shaped by my abusive dad. And I brought that into my understanding of who God was. I was mad at God because of what had been done to me emotionally and physically. See the connection? Body, emotion, spirituality. And being in ministry full-time for a few years, getting to know students that have gone through trauma, that have gone through uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and seeing how that ties into how they view the world, but more so how they view God, or don't want to believe in God, there is no doubt that that connection is real. But positively, this connection of the whole human being, this is also why in God's revelation, when God reveals himself, he does not just do it in a spiritual sense. And he does not just do it in an emotional sense. And he does not just do it in a bodily sense. He does it in all aspects of our humanity. And this is where we get to the question, faith or fact? If that is true, if because we're made in the image of God, in order for God to fully reveal himself, he has to reveal himself emotionally, spiritually, bodily, intellectually. He's got to reveal himself in all those ways in order for us to have faith. And God does it. Listen to this quote by Thomas Arnold. He's a historian from Oxford University. 
he says this, and this is what put me on my journey. I read this in college and it put me on a journey of understanding that faith did not mean that we do not have facts. He says, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times. He wrote the, the, the biggest novel, uh, not novel, but history book on the history of Rome. It is the classic history book of Rome. So this guy is like the historian of historians. And to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquiry than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. This is a historian of historians. And what he says is there is no greater fact that I know in all of history than the fact that God has given us that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. I read that and I was like, what? The resurrection? Of all things, I thought the resurrection had to be taken on faith, right? Which is true, but it was my definition of faith that was wrong. So, let's talk about what the New Testament does. Here's something that maybe a lot of you don't know. The reason that the New Testament books are in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, uh, Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, uh, Revelation, all these books, the reason that they were accepted as the revelation of God is because they were written by eyewitness accounts. They were written by eyewitnesses giving eyewitness accounts of the things that they were talking about. So, 1 John 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You see the criteria? John says, I'm writing this because I have seen with my eyes. I have touched with my hands. I've looked upon this man, Jesus Christ. I've seen him. I'm an eyewitness observer. Look at the next one. This is from uh, the Apostle Peter and Luke from Luke's Gospel. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it happen. This isn't a myth that's just being made up out of thin air. We saw this happen. And then Luke says, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, meaning what Jesus has accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were what? Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account to you, 
most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke says, I'm getting the historical evidence. I'm getting the facts and I'm writing them down so that you can be certain of the things that you believe. Is this starting to break down the paradigm? The dichotomy between faith and fact? There is no dichotomy in the Bible. Faith and fact always go together. And this will be the last part of my talk, this idea that Jesus proves himself. So that section from Luke uh, was the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. This section right here is the very beginning of Acts. Acts is the second book that Luke wrote to this, uh, this guy named Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You see the trend here? God, Jesus, is not asking us to have faith based on this blind idea of who he is. He is asking us to have faith based on the proof that he has already given us. We, sitting here 2,000 years later, after these books were written, are no different than the very first believers in Jesus. There's this idea that C.S. Lewis talks about called chronological snobbery, where we think in our modern culture that we've somehow all of a sudden discovered this idea called reason. And that people centuries prior to us didn't have reason. They just said, oh, I believe in that because that guy said it. Or I believe in that miracle because, you know, my grandma told me about it. That is not true. You can see the epistemology found 2,000 years ago right here. Jesus had to prove himself to his first followers in order that they might believe. Not only did he have to, but he wanted to. So let me talk a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus. Think back to that Thomas Arnold uh, quote when he said that there's no greater proof that God has given us in history than that Jesus raised from the dead, that Jesus resurrected. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is Paul writing to a church in the city of Corinth in the Roman Empire in around 50 A.D. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep or died, 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Just a little fun fact. That guy James, that's Jesus' brother. In the Gospels, it talks about Jesus' brothers and his, his family thinking that Jesus was crazy. I think somebody talked about that in one of the big talks. Maybe D.A. said it. He's talking about how Jesus' family thought, this guy's crazy. He's claiming to be God. He's saying that he can forgive sins. What is wrong with him? He's our brother. But then we find in the New Testament a book called James that was written by the brother of Jesus. What happened to James in between that account where, they, where he's saying, Jesus, you're crazy. I'm not, uh, I'm not telling anybody you're my brother. You know, some of y'all have done that before. <laughs> what happened between that and, G- and James writing a book of the Bible? It was right here. Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. And then a lot of you know, Paul writing this letter was the biggest persecutor, the biggest hater of Christianity in its first uh, decade. He was imprisoning Christians. He was having Christians stoned. He was having Christians beaten because he was saying, these are blasphemers. They are blaspheming against the real God. And he was willing to do whatever it took in order to get rid of them. What happened between that point and Paul writing the majority of the New Testament? It's right here. Paul says, Jesus appeared to me. And after that, I believed. (laughs) But what I really want you to see is what he says when Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. At one time, Jesus appeared to 500 people and Paul says, most of them are still alive. Why would he say that? Why would he say he appeared to 500 of them, most of them are still alive, though some of them have already died? Why would he say that? This is why. Paul is saying, Corinthians, if you don't trust me, why don't you make your way down to Jerusalem and talk to these 250 brothers and ask them, ask them if it's true. Ask them if I'm just making this stuff up. Ask them if they saw Jesus. Are you going to disagree with 250 plus people who said, I don't know how it happened, but I saw Jesus alive. I saw him. Just like 1 John says, I touched him. I saw him. He was really there. Jesus really raised from the dead. Jesus proves himself again and specifically in the resurrection. So, Thomas Arnold's quote is true. There's a, there's a book that you should read if you're interested in this resurrection stuff. The Historicity of the Resurrection called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. I've got a quote from him in a couple slides. But just based on historical criteria, okay, how we, how we determine if history, the history that we know is true, <coughs> the resurrection is historically accurate. You can go through all the criteria that historians use to determine if something in history is true. And if you go through it, 
Jesus' resurrection is true. Here are a few reasons. First, Jesus' body was buried in a known tomb. People knew exactly where Jesus was buried. This is, this is attested to in the New Testament and from multiple sources that say that uh, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea and some other followers of Jesus took his body down from the cross and they placed him in a tomb. They knew exactly where he was. That's significant. Secondly, Jesus' tomb was found empty two days after his death. How do we know this? Well, mainly because the gospel accounts that are given to us, if they were made up accounts, they wouldn't be written the way that they are. Because guess who finds the empty tomb first? The women. And back in Jesus' day, women were treated as second-class citizens. They were on par with children and slaves. And if you're going to try to prove your case, then the people that you want uh, giving testimony, it's not women. So it would make sense only if these accounts are actually accurate. That the Bible says the women were the first to find the empty tomb. Otherwise, in their culture, they would call into question the rationality of women. (laughs) I mean, it's silly, but... The point is, the Bible gives us this accurate account of women finding the empty tomb of Jesus. Thirdly, on multiple occasions and in various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. And this is is what blows my mind in studying this. There are non-Christians, okay? There are non-Christians that do not believe in God or believe in a different God, that are scholars that agree with this point. On multiple occasions and in various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. How in the world does that work? How can you agree with that statement and not believe in Jesus? It's the anatomy of unbelief. You can take a fact and you can twist it and you can distort it and you can suppress it. And you can take that fact and still say, I don't believe in Jesus. And then lastly, Jesus' followers believed that he was the Messiah after his death. Listen to this. This is from that guy N.T. Wright that I just said, talked about. Other prophets, other messiahs came and went in Jesus' day, okay? Jesus wasn't the only one going into Israel saying, hey, I'm the messiah, I'm the actual savior. He wasn't the only one doing that. And and non-Christian scholars try to use that to disprove the accounts of the Gospels. But in reality... And ironically, it actually proves the significance of what happened with Jesus and his followers. Look at what he says. Routinely, they died violently at the hands of the pagan enemy. Their movements either died with them, sometimes literally, or transformed themselves into a new movement around a new leader. See what he's saying? These people that were claiming to be the Messiah and they were killed by the Roman government, their followers, you know what they did? They were like, all right, I'm not a part of that anymore. 
which makes sense, right? Nobody worships a dead Savior. But look at what he says. Within days of his execution, it found, it being the Christian movement, found a new lease on life. Within weeks, it was announcing that he was indeed the Messiah. Within a year or two, it was proclaiming him to pagans as their rightful Lord. How does that make any sense? If all the other movements, all these other messianic movements that were claiming that this this guy that we're following, he's the Messiah, when they died, they all left. The movement is over. But for some reason, with the Jesus movement, with Christianity... It didn't die out, but it actually flourished after the death of Jesus. What explains that? The best explanation for that is what the Bible claims, that Jesus rose from the dead. If you disagree with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, here's what you have to assume. That the first followers of Jesus just made it up That they just somehow concocted this unbelievable story about a guy that claimed to be God, but then he was crucified and then he rose again. And now we're going to live for him and call him our Lord. But here's the thing. Christians were persecuted and they were killed. And the very people that non-believing scholars say just made this up like Paul and Peter and James and John. Guess what happened to those guys? They were killed saying Jesus rose from the dead and because he rose from the dead, he is Lord. But here's the reality. Nobody goes to their deathbed claiming a known lie. Plenty of people die for a lie. Nobody dies for a known lie. All they had to do was say, you're right, you're right. We made it up. Jesus isn't alive. He's dead. There's no reason for us to keep following him. You don't have to kill us. Take the sword off my neck, okay? Sharp. (laughs) But they said, no, Jesus is risen. Do what you got to do. Do you see the point? There's no reason for Peter to make it up. There's no reason for Paul to make it up. It wasn't helpful for them to become Christians. You know, in some parts of our country, it's beneficial to become a Christian socially. In this part, in this history, you can get your head chopped off real quick. And the very people that made it up, that's exactly what happened. So, what is faith? This is what, uh, this is the two different stories that Dr., uh, what's his name, Dr. Coyne uh, references. Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their condemnation or commendation. Secondly, from the doubting Thomas story. Then he said to Thomas, then Jesus said to Thomas, 
Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Guys, Jesus wants to prove himself to you. He's proven through eyewitness accounts, through the historical event of the resurrection. Jesus has proved to you that he is indeed what he claimed to be. That is the son of God, the reigning Lord of the universe. Jesus has proved that. Jesus has also proven this. He's not just, he's not just on this hierarchy where he's on top, where he's God, where he's powerful, but he's also proven that he loves you. He proved his power and his authority through his resurrection, and he proved his love through the cross. And the resurrection validated everything that Jesus said and what he did on the cross. Jesus proved to you by fact, Jesus has proven to you that he is indeed who he claimed to be and that he loves you. Just like what he does with Thomas here. Thomas, look at me. Thomas, this is a fact. Don't don't disbelieve. Believe. And the reaction of Thomas is, my Lord and my God. So what is faith? Faith is not the absence of facts. Faith is taking the facts that we know are true and turning from the anatomy of, of unbelief turning from suppressing it, turning from distorting it, turning from using it to our own ends, turning from all that, faith is taking those facts and bowing the knee to Jesus. Saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. Faith is submission, guys. Faith is submission to facts. It is not the absence of facts. It is the submission to the facts. So, my call to you, and I encourage you all, feel free to come and talk to me. I know we're, we're, uh, we've got 10 minutes left. We can have a little question uh, session. But my encouragement to you is to consider the response of Thomas, where he falls on his knees and he proclaims, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Thomas went to his death just like the other apostles did. (laughs) Will you bow the knee to Jesus and will you submit to the facts that God in Jesus Christ does indeed exist? Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at newyearsconference.com.